Late in the afternoon of a chilly day in February, two gentlemen were sitting alone over their wine in a well-furnished dining parlor in the town of Pea in Kentucky. There were no servants present, and the gentlemen, with chairs closely approaching, seemed to be discussing some subject with great earnestness. For convenience sake, we have said, hitherto, two gentlemen. One of the parties, however, when critically examined, did not seem, strictly speaking, to come under the species. He was a short, thick-set man, with coarse, commonplace features, and that swaggering air of pretension which marks a low man who is trying to elbow his way upward in the world. He was much overdressed, in a gaudy vest of many colors, a blue neckerchief spangled gaily with yellow spots and arranged with a flaunting tie, quite in keeping with the general air of the man. His hands, large and coarse, were plentifully bedizened with rings, and he wore a heavy gold watch chain with a bundle of seals of portentous size and a great variety of colors attached to it, which, in the ardor of conversation, he was in the habit of flourishing and jingling with evident satisfaction. His conversation was in free and easy defiance of Murray's grammar, and was garnished at convenient intervals with various profane expressions, which not even the desire to be graphic in our account shall induce us to transcribe. His companion, Mr. Shelby, had the appearance of a gentleman, and the arrangements of the house and the general air of the housekeeping indicated easy and even opulent circumstances. As we before stated, the two were in the midst of an earnest conversation. That is the way I should arrange the matter, said Mr. Shelby. I can't make trade that way. I positively can't, Mr. Shelby, said the other, holding up a glass of wine between his eye and the light. Why, the fact is, Haley, Tom is an uncommon fellow. He is certainly worth that sum anywhere. Steady, honest, capable, manages my whole farm like a clock. You mean honest as <clears throat> go, said Haley, helping himself to a glass of brandy. No. I mean, really, Tom is a good, steady, sensible, pious fellow. He got religion at a camp meeting four years ago, and I believe he really did get it. I've trusted him since then with everything I have, money, house, horses, and let him come and go round the country, and I always found him true and square in everything. Some folks don't believe there is pious, <clears throat> Shelby, said Haley, with a candid flourish of his hand, but I do. I had a fellow now, in this year last lot, I took to Orleans. Twas as good as a meetin' now, really, to hear that critter pray. And he was quite gentle and quiet-like. He fetched me a good sum, too, for I bought him cheap of a man that was obliged to sell out. So I realized six hundred on him. Yes, I consider a religion a valuable thing in a... <clears throat> when it's the genuine article, and no mistake. Well, Tom's got the real article, if ever a fellow had, rejoined the other. Why, last fall, I let him go to Cincinnati alone to do business for me and bring home $500. Tom, says I to him, I trust you because I think you're a Christian. I know you wouldn't cheat. Tom comes back, sure enough. I knew he would. Some low fellows, they say, said to him, Tom, why don't you make tracks for Canada? Ah, master trusted me and I couldn't. They told me about it. I am sorry to part with Tom, I must say. You ought to let him cover the whole balance of the debt, and you would, Haley, if you had any conscience. This is Dark and Stormy Nights, the podcast where we read the first page, and only the first page, 
of every novel ever written. I'm your host, Vin LeBate. And I'm your other host, Ben Blattberg. And tonight we're talking about the first page of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, published in 1852. And our guest tonight is Monsieur P. Desa Pereira. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Hi, Vin. Hi, Ben. Hello, and thank you for uh, letting us talk about this book, which several people have said no to. <laughs> uh, and now I feel like I understand why. <laughs> well, it's the other people. The other people wouldn't have been reading the first page out loud. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm rather startled that so many people said no to reading a book. Uh, it's probably the only book you'll ever cover that has a... Uh, U-Bahn station named after it in Berlin. <laughs> I, I was going to say the, the only book we were likely to cover that started a war, but... That too. And uh, and also the only author whose grave I walked past nearly every single day in high school. Hmm. Just just some fun facts out there about Uncle Tom's Cabin. Or Uncle Tom's Hütte, as uh, the U-Bahn station is called. <laughs> Wait, uh... Can you say more about why there is a station with that name? Uh, un- unfortunately, from my understanding, which which is how these days we say Wikipedia, mm-hmm. <laughs> the I I'd hoped that it was because the book Uncle Tom's Cabin was you know as as we'll probably talk about some just a monstrous hit and was popular all ar- all over the world. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems that there was a Tom who had a pub. In that this is on the outskirts of Berlin, like out in the suburbs, and the pub had like a bunch of little cabins around it or something. So people just started calling them Tom's cabins, <laughs> <laughs> and then then just you know things got mixed up. Oh, oh, okay. language is fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, oh, it's just always funny, like 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 when you learn about um, uh, Shatterhand and like the tradition of westerns written by germans uh you know you know the uh the, the story series of uh, old shatterhand no oh uh the only shatterhand i know is from game of thrones uh a fictional character in the western novels of german writer carl may uh he has a blood brother named winnetou who is a chief of the apache Mm. Uh, and as far as I know, I, I remember a teacher once telling me that, uh, Carl May started writing these when he was in prison in Germany and like, obviously never actually went to America. Kind of like, if you remember reading, a uh, uh, Tintin going to America mm-hmm. where there, where there's like gangsters and Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, when, when you invite me back to discuss, uh, Tintin en Amérique, you know, we can, uh, talk more about Hergé's, uh, bizarro. Yeah racism at the same time as a very very eager desire to i mean t- to play anthropologist and get get the look of the mm-hmm. natives just right to the point where it becomes geographically nonsense because the people he's drawing are not local to the Kansas where the action mm-hmm. is supposed to take place well so okay so quick quick uh quick aside uh i read that as him not knowing and then later Someone, I think, suggested that perhaps it was like knowing and co- somewhat ironic or satirical to jumble all of like America up. Uh, what, 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 what's your take? I missed what you said because everything froze up for a second. Oh, sorry. Uh, 
I said that uh, my my original reading of the of Tintin, uh, and it's funny because I I say Tintin, but I also say Milu, so I'm just very confused. Uh, You're a Frenchophile, not a Francophile. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like mixed up. It's like how when I try to speak uh, French, like weird parts of Spanish come in. Uh, but um, my reading of Tintin in America, my original reading that was just that like he didn't know, kind of like in. Uh, Kafka's novel, America, the Statue of Liberty is, is described as holding a sword, which people have said is just like, oh, it's like Kafka just did not know what the Statue of Liberty looked like. Um, but coming back to later, I kind of wonder if all of this is like uh, purposeful. Like is, is, is Herge, Herge's, uh, uh, is his blending of like just American symbolism, just him having fun? Well, I think, I think that it's, the way the way it plays out, and I can't I can't quite remember the details because I'm actually sort of writing something that that talks about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I feel bad that I can't remember the details off the top of my head. But it it's probably both ultimately. Mm-hmm. Like he was very, very detail focused mm-hmm. about a lot of things and a lot of how he described, you know, the made up countries, et cetera, is actually pretty sharp. Um, you know, to the point where in the Blue Lotus, when Tintin has to walk around, uh, he gets imprisoned or whatever in a Chinese jail, and he has to walk around with like a big thing around his neck that lists his crimes, and like written on that is Ding Ding, like his name in Chinese. <laughs> so, uh, LJ really took a lot of efforts, made made great efforts to to be true that way. And this is actually all about Harriet Beecher Stowe too, <laughs> because, uh, one of the things that happened when this, the, when uncle Tom's cabin came out is everyone said that Stowe was making all this sort of stuff up. Mm-hmm. And so she followed up in, in 1853, I think with the uncle Tom's cabin key, mm-hmm. which is like, here are my sources. I got the receipts. Like slavery is actually this bad. Um, but yeah, so I think that, in the Tintin example, it's it's a little of both, like try, wanting to have as much America as possible in mm-hmm. however many pages, but also really wanting to make sure that the depiction of the natives is at least consistent, internally consistent, mm-hmm. which apparently it is. He based it on photos from one tribe or something along those lines. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I, I think also, it, it's funny because like talking about works that are supposed to be um mimetic in some ways but also recognizable right like like we are supposed to recognize the you know the the natives that tintin is meeting like wherever he goes right like so they're always they're always going to have some marker of like that that region's uh native culture that would be known to the you know belgian french uh readership right yeah, and that's you. You get that in the characters of the uh, the Thompson twins because they always <laughs> are are trying to dress up in disguise, and so they adopt like local local garb, and it's always they they don't fit in at all. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking uh, in, I think King Ottokar's scepter or something like that, where they they dress in traditional garb and just look like you know, like Greek peasants or something <laughs> along those lines. It's ridiculous. Yeah, um, but I. I wanted to, in in all earnestness, like thank you a lot for asking me to to talk about this book. I'm surprised people said no, because this uh, this book is, I think, really probably not misunderstood, but like very much overlooked 
and uh, and has p- plays a astonishingly vital role in American history. I mean, it was the the most sold book in the United States in the 19th century, mm-hmm. next to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible edged it out, but uh, and also in in a more serious note, it's also a kind of homage to me because Ben and I, you read the you and I read this in a class in grad school with Lauren Berlant, who recently passed away. And a lot of my thinking about this novel and my thinking about 19th century American literature is based on how they read this novel and how they read the sentimentality of, uh, or the role of sentimentality in the promise of political change. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure to thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here to talk about this. And it is interesting. Well, I guess, we, actually, uh, to start there. Um, so I, I have read this novel. Uh, I have thought about this novel a lot uh, in the past. I have not read it recently. I I feel like I probably would talk about this as like a favorite novel of mine, uh, in part because of how different it is in actuality from how it is in like cultural imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, especially, well, we'll get into that. Uh, Vin, have you ever read this novel? I have read a chunk of it mm. in a, I want to say, I don't think it was actually a U.S. lit survey course. I think it was a U.S. history survey course mm. uh, when I was at UMass and uh, did not finish because, again, it was a thing for a course. And you know how that goes from time to time. Mm-hmm. But like I was like at the time, both, you know, incredibly impressed at its its role in uh, in American history, but also just at how readable it is. Like, I don't really know what I was expecting going in, but. Like even during the, just during the class, I was like, oh, this is, this is actually very like easy to read and like engaging, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is not always the case with things one is assigned in a uh, U.S. history survey course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I read this book again. This was a uh, U.S. historical novel uh, seminar. Uh, and I was actually the, the, the two classes I was taking that quarter were uh, Berlant's class on the historical novel, uh, and their class on trauma. And I think at some time I, I went to, to Lauren and said like, like, oh, uh, the historical is all about trauma. <laughs> uh, and, and they were like, yes, like that's, that's what I've been trying to say. <laughs> it was just very funny just to be like, like, oh, I like, you know, you know, that point sometimes in, in college when like different classes kind of start melding together and you're like, oh, wait, like what I learned in this class informs what I'm learning in this class. And I, I just remember coming to this realization uh, and like, yeah, like that not being a great realization or mm. uh, uh, not being news to the teacher. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. You found the thesis. <laughs> <laughs> or like, congratulations. You've like, you, you understood some of my work. Mm. Uh, but yeah. But I think, I think that it's readability. I think that one one way to think about that is is I actually don't think I've read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, I read the first hundred pages for sure because I have a lot of ideas about the first hundred pages, mm-hmm. but I have very f- many fewer ideas about the the next couple hundred pages. But uh, I agree that it's very readable and and it's very engaging, and I think that's largely because the way we see it hear it, et cetera, in the 20th century. And to a degree, like 
Lauren and others write about it this way, is that it comes to us through through its after effects. You know, through the fact that this this novel has been dramatized, has been has been changed and cited, et cetera, so many over and over and over again, to the point where I think that before I read what I read of it, I probably just expected it to be like an, an extremely grotesque minstrelsy mm-hmm. type thing, like along the lines of um another Tintin book, Tantano Congo, <laughs> but it's not, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and that's the whole point is that that was very explicitly Stowe's gambit in this novel was to, was precisely to do and uh, to not do a show and to not do a minstrel show. And, you know, I think, I think that uh, Eric Lott and Love and Theft talks about, uh, you know, like the tradition of minstrelsy somehow somewhat grew out of or alongside the popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm. and you know the the figure of the Uncle Tom mm-hmm. is you know we don't need to rehearse what that means, but it's it's very much an inversion of what seems to be at play here with this novel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, but at the go ahead. No, no, you you finish your thought. Well, I was just going to return to the text because even so, you know the. This opening scene is kind of interesting to me in the way that it uh, it sets up this well well it sets up a question I wanted to ask you too. So the the name of the chapter is in which the reader is introduced to a man of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is that man? Uh, I don't know if that's a trick question or not. I mean, having read the novel, uh, I mean, well, I guess I guess that's a question. Like if if it's straight, like. If it is to be read straight, uh, the man of humanity is Tom. Like Tom is, uh, and it, it again. Sorry, just to, like to go back. It is interesting how, like the character and phrase Uncle Tom has like transformed uh, through history, uh, kind of in a way like the a victim of its own success. I guess mm-hmm. like in, in in the way that like this was such a big book as as you were saying most here that like this was such a big book that like people. Uh, dramatized parts of it but also um like uh minstrelized uh parts of it and also there was a whole class of like anti-tom literature uh which which i have read at least one novel in that class and it's it's not a good novel mm-hmm. uh I, I i i cannot recommend it uh on purely aesthetic grounds um but um i mean tom is the most humane character like he is the one who is the perfect embodiment of many of the Christian virtues which are at the heart of Harriet uh, Beecher Stowe's uh, conception of community and, like, loving nationhood. Mm. Uh, It's a weird way to put it, but uh, I'll put it that way. Um, But I guess read ironically, like, man of humanity... uh, I I guess that's a question of, like, how long does this chapter go on? Because, like, Mm. uh, Haley is clearly, like, you know, like, uh, Haley is a contemptible figure. Mm. Uh, you know, a man for whom religion is a commodifiable quality. Uh, and if he is the an exemplar of humanity, then Beecher Stowe would have a negative view of humanity. And I, I don't believe this novel is about that. Like, it, it, well, the, the narrator just says, you know, Haley only counts as a gentleman just just for the sake of brevity. Yeah, you yeah know, that, right. that under under normal circumstances he wouldn't. Um, it just it just to cut you off. I'm 
I'm startled that you said red straight, it's Tom, because to me, red straight, it's Shelby. And because what what the because the the sort of project of the novel is to be like, what if enslaved people actually are people? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the that's the sentimental the the bet that Stowe makes is that by by creating this sentimental work that people are going to read the humanity of people like Tom uh, are going to read humanity into Tom into Eliza you know etc and in so doing understand that slavery cannot continue mm-hmm. right but as a result the implication is that on page one, we're not ready to see Tom as a as a exemplar of humanity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the the fact that Shelby and Haley disagree about him, like indicates that indicates that, and and even even between the two of them, neither of them is willing to grant Tom the level of humanity that Stowe wants to grant, because we're still here, you know. Shelby is has some kind of debt. We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And he has to cover the debt, and he considers it to be a perfectly fine solution for him to literally sell a human being in order to cover some kind of debt. Mm-hmm. While in the meantime, he's in a well-furnished dining parlor mm-hmm. where there's probably well-furnished stuff and wine. And, like there's, There are so many other commodities he could sell, mm-hmm. hypothetically, to cover this debt, and instead decides to commodify another human being. So, so I think that that's... Yeah, so so to me the so you see what I'm saying about how I don't see the straight reading as being Tom. Mm. I think that that that's that's how we approach it. We we see that there's a trick being played here that oh, it's going to turn out that the human is Tom all along. Right. Whereas in this page we're supposed to think, "Oh, Shelby, you know, look how look how what a good human Shelby is uh who who even trusts Tom to go to to Ohio with five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. but at the same time, and this is still the Ohio of you know post Dred Scott. Mm. So it's not like Tom is immediately free, and this is exactly what Eliza has to undergo too. Is she escapes to Ohio, but still has to make her way to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to clarify, um, are you saying that? <laughs> uh, what I, what I'm hearing you say, and, and what I, I agree with, is that the page is structured uh, kind of like a joke. In the sense of like, here are two people. The chapter title is "A Man of Humanity." Here's Haley. He's a piece of shit. Like, he's not a gentleman. Like, but let's talk about Shelby. Like Shelby, who's trusting and loving. And then the joke of the page is like, Shelby's humanity is flawed in the way that I guess uh, a lot of people's humanity is flawed uh, because he is unwilling to accept the humanity of his fellow Christian. Well. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's the extreme complexity of the situation is that uh, because like literally what happens right after this, like on the next page, is so this is this is so so great because like I said, Shelby has some kind of debt. We don't know what that debt is, mm-hmm. but he's like he's like I can sell a human being in order to cover that debt. And then at the end of this page, he says, you ought to let him, Tom, cover the whole balance of the debt. <laughs> and you would, Haley, if you had any conscience. <laughs> if you were a good human, yeah. you would say like, yes, Tom is uh, is a sufficient payment to cover this yeah, debt. Yeah, the irony is dripping and, at that line. Right. 
Right. And then and then right after this, what happens is um, I think his name is Harry comes in, who's Eliza's little kid. Mm-hmm. And Shelby is like, oh, Jim Crow. And he says, like, hey, Jim Crow, do a do a dance for me, like sing a song for me. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, like and and has the kid, the kid's like four or five years old, asks the kid to do impressions, et cetera, et cetera. And the result of this is that Haley is like, all right, the debt's settled if you throw the kid in too. Uh-huh. Which which is what prompts Eliza to flee because she doesn't want her, she doesn't want to be separated from her son. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, so so even you know, even the way that this this first page is sort of so complexly layering these kinds of questions about what is appropriate, what is humane, what's ethical, et cetera. And then even if we're just like, yeah, Shelby's good people on the next page, just like, oh, this is this is hard to <laughs> read. <man." laughs> um, and again, not in a way that's like minstrelsy, but in a way that that really, uh, really, I think, shows Shelby to be a just a complicated person mm-hmm. and and without excusing it without anything. And, and what ends up, you know, in you know, he does end up selling Tom anyway, and and so on and so forth. And and Tom goes down the river, you know, in in the literal sense that that gives that expression its its contemporary meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's only uh, it's only his son George, who looked to Tom as like a father figure or something along those lines, who endeavors to to free Tom, but doesn't get there in time because this is a sentimental novel right. and. Tom has to pay for his goodness by dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's so, I mean, that, I, it's, it's funny. So uh, let me correct then, or let me rethink my, my statement at the beginning then. Because Tom, like you say, is like, he's not a man of humanity. He's a man of saintliness, right? Yes, saint is, is a very good term. Uh, I mean, or, or, or Christ. Mm. Uh, uh, he is he is someone who will who, who, whose death will hopefully uh, fix a systematic uh, wrong. So then, the man of humanity is Shelby, but humanity is in Stowe's uh, view uh, a complicated thing, right? Like so, the, the the straight reading of it is like Shelby is a good guy, and then you learn about him and you realize that like actually, you know. He is, uh, in some ways, a failure uh, of a. I mean, I, I keep coming back to this whole Christian thing because that 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 is my reading of the novel, uh, and I, I don't think it's a particularly uh, tendentious reading. That like, no, not at all. Like Stowe's view of humanity is as a brotherhood in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Stowe is the literal daughter of a preacher, married a preacher, would have been a preacher herself if not being a her. Uh, you know, lived at a, in a seminary in Ohio. Like, like this is this is very much the case. And there's, uh, you know, just uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin is kind of in one way a, a rebuke to her father, who was more on the appease the South side of things, as you know, because the American Protestantism was trying to figure out what to do about slavery. Like, how could it make sense of it? And you had Unitarians, from my understanding, I'm not an expert on this, but but you had Unitarians sort of uh, soft-pedaling it, and then you had the radicals who were pushing for 
full abolition now, et cetera, and with Stowe somewhere kind of in the middle, Mm -hmm. but definitely much more of an abolitionist than her father. And I think that I, I like this idea that you're saying that you, that the man of humanity is Shelby, but because humanity is broken, Mm -hmm. because humanity refuses to see the inhumane way in which it's acting towards enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that the novel maybe bears that out because um, I'm not going to remember her name now, but one of the characters is like a New Englander abolitionist yes. who is nevertheless racist AF. Mm-hmm. Yes, who, who, whose failure is, is is a failure of love, love, right? Like she's just like, oh, like these are people and we should treat them as such. But like, like she fails to hug a, a black person. Whereas, um, and again, this is so fun just to be like, oh yes, all these characters. I don't know. There's a little girl who's also a saint. Little Eva. Yes. Evangeline. Uh, um, there's a Neon Genesis joke in there somewhere. But, uh, uh, yes. Um, well, I mean, Evangeline, like, it, it, like, literally means, like, evangelist? bringer of the good news or something yeah. like that, or angel or something along those lines. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there, there, there's something where, like, it's, it's the failure of love, right? Oh, God, what is her name? She has a great like Northern, like stern aunt name, which is again, like part of also, I think Stowe's, um, uh, I, I like the phrase you use, like sentimental bet, where like she wants to present this, like there's this inhumanity towards our fellow man. Uh, and I'm going to show that it is not a Southern thing by like having my bad, like the, the, the worst, uh, slave owner is a Northerner and like the failure of this Northern abolitionist. And like, like it's not a southern problem; it's a human U- U.S. problem, right? Yes, Simon Simon Legree is from the north. Mm. Uh, he establishes himself in the south, and he he's the the center of evil in the novel. Um, uh, uh, we've really talked about a lot of stuff here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a good like 20, 20, 20 minutes on 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 ten ten, but uh, isn't there always? Um, Why well, can <laughs> well, I think I think that there there are a couple uh, things about the text and and the cover that I also wanted to bring up because the current cover, the current Penguin cover, which isn't the cover that we had in grad school, but the current one has a is a reproduction of a poster that says Uncle Tom's Cabin for sale here, and underneath it says an edition for the million, complete in one volume, price thirty seven and a half cents. And then an edition in German in one volume, price 50 cents. And then there's another, uh, a fancier hardcover version for, for a dollar and a half. And the, the fact that there's a second German one really, really resonates with me because I think that it, it just like we misunderstand the role of Uncle Tom's Cabin in 19th century American political history. It's my understanding, and I'm very new to this, that we're also misunderstanding the role that uh, German immigrants played Mm. in American political Mm. life in the 19th century. One of the podcasts I listen to, Warnerd, is doing a series on the U.S. Civil War right now, where they talk about how when the Civil War started, the Confederates were raiding Unionist armories to grab all the weapons. And that the generals, the Union generals, were more or less kind of okay with this because they were friends with the Confederates, et cetera, et cetera. 
but it was the younger officers who they didn't have that kind they didn't have the same kind of esprit de corps and so as a result they wanted to defend the armories mm-hmm. and in St. Louis where apparently there was a big battle about this mm. the young officers recruited a militia made up of german immigrants because the german immigrants came in they're like what what are you people doing with this slavery thing like this is just yeah. how can you be mm-hmm. doing this and and just the the radical incognizability or something like the just the the inability to even read slavery as something that is real like reproduces itself in in this kind of german experience and then you know and, and you have that into the late 19th century with with german immigrants and their role in in the labor movement and so on and so forth mm-hmm. until the early 20th century when they all began deracinating <laughs> or degermanizing right um yeah with the first world war it's funny uh sorry just on on that topic uh uh if you are curious about that i i would advise you to look at the uh the Nueces massacre uh, because like you were saying, like my understanding is that a lot of the Germans who came over at that point were like free thinkers, like very invested in this idea of liberty, uh, and the promise of America, uh, as a place where you could be free. Um, mm-hmm. and so like in, in Texas where there's like a pretty big, uh, German immigrant population, um, there are towns here that have civil war monuments where like one side is like, this is a list of the Confederate dead from our town and the other side is like this is a list of the union dead from our town because like there was a lot of strong union and anti-slavery sentiment here among the german uh population uh but that is interesting also well okay uh <laughs> uh misophilia sorry mm. to go back uh misophilia is the uh, the abolitionist the pious the pious abolitionist who displays the ambiguities uh, felt by many northerners at the time there we go. That is the, I mean, that, that's the Wikipedia summary of her. And I think that is a pretty fair uh, discussion. I, I wanted to also bring up a couple other little things about this first page, if I may. Oh, please. The, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. This is, I, I this don't is know. A, I, I, heard, this is I heard that's what the podcast <laughs> is about. But I, I, I'm absolutely floored by this second paragraph, which is where the narrator begins by saying, for convenience sake, we have said hitherto to gentlemen. One of the parties, however, when critically examined, did not seem, strictly speaking, to come under the species. And so this is, this is a very fun way of kind of problematizing the idea of using ascriptive identities to, to describe people in the mm-hmm. first place. Mm. You know, with this... and. And this is probably a lot of this is 21st century reading, et cetera, you know, where species means something specific, et cetera. But the, what's really great here is that the narrator is like, yeah, Haley isn't a gentleman, but it's not a question of birth. So even though, even though the narrator uses this word species that like, like that suggests that gentlemanness or gentleness or whatever is, is a question of birth. It's, it's an ascriptive identity. Nevertheless, Haley is clearly not a gentleman, not because of birth. We don't know about his birth, but rather because of his dress and his language. Mm-hmm. And what this 
what this sort of prompts is this kind of question of, well, is he uncouth because of his birth? Mm. You know, we 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 could make that that case today that people are uncouth because of their birth, but not because they are born with some kind of problematic, uh, you know, genetic whatever, whatever, but because if, you know, their birth entails the circumstances under which they grow up, and so they will grow up without the uh, fancy book learning of Mr. Shelby, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll speak uh, more roughly, like like Ben, you were doing with your accent work. <laughs> and so, so in that sense, this that sort of pr- like this idea of species is somehow really tricky because we would we would say that Haley isn't born uncouth, but at the same time, his his behavior may reveal that he is born uncouth for whatever reason, like socioeconomic, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's held in contrast with Tom, because what's important about Tom is not his birth, although that's the circumstances under which he is made to be sellable. What's important about Tom is not something, or it's two things at the same time. It's the ascriptive nature of his racial identity that is the circumstances under which he's allowed to be enslaved and then sold for a debt, but also the act of the performance of the identity of true believer. And so, you know, in in just like the three characters, well, I guess Murray is a fourth, but in the three people who come up in this in on this first page, two of them are challenged with this kind of nature versus nurture on how it describes who you actually are. Whereas about Shelby, we get nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's and that that was flagged to me by that the two words critically examined. Yeah. I was like, let me <laughs> let's critically examine this. Well, that it, it is funny that that second paragraph like really sticks in the knife, right? Yeah. Like even though I I, I did that like one of the parties, however, when critically examined, did not seem strictly speaking, and like there's so much of that like those little asides that like. It, it it strikes me as very sort of like comic understatement. Mm-hmm. There's like it's like oh when you critically examine this it's like when you critically examine this guy who's wearing like a clown costume essentially and who cannot talk correctly uh, or does not talk in an educated fashion uh, and who like is just generally uh, unpleasant like it doesn't take like that much critical examination I feel like uh, but but on the other hand. Think about it this way. Haley is completely in the right here. He is owed a debt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he maybe is coarse, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But that's that's an aesthetic distinction. You know, he he's behaving completely. It's it's Shelby that that has committed the sin of of living beyond his means or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that that occasioned this this debt and occasioned the the solution of selling tom and when it when it comes down to it like if we accept that Haley is not a gentleman then you know by the end of the page by the end of the chapter we see that shelby who is a gentleman is you know also a slaver and willing to do terrible things so maybe the designation of gentleman and the like all of the concepts tied to it don't have the value that mm-hmm. a lot of people would imply that they do. So what I'm hearing is Ben is team Tom is a man of humanity. <laughs> Moisir is team Shelby is a man of humanity. And Vin is team 
Haley is a man of humanity. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sort of team. Uh, the term "man of humanity" is used sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's. I think that there are uh, later chapter titles also have this sort of thing, and I think because what happens is Eliza is uh, when she crosses into Ohio, she gets rescued, and if I recall correctly, like the chapter title is something like in which a man is is does his duty or something mm. like that because the the duty that he does is he doesn't give her give her up mm-hmm. he lets her her continue moving north um so so i think that you know the there's there's an element here of a of a kind of didactic nature mm-hmm. that we're supposed to be learning from this but at the same time what we're trying to what we're supposed to be learning is really unclear well um other yeah. than you know that that slavery is is far more terrible than you would have thought i i will it, it is funny cuz like i mean like you were saying this was um uh uh this is post um oh gosh uh post missouri compromise um sorry in the missouri Trent scott uh, and and that that that's part of the like uh um right you're not safe in ohio right uh yeah. right so a man doing his like i i guess actually that that's something i want to say and it is not totally clear on this page but i think we are showing that it is uh in this page that stowe is um a- although remembered today when she's thought about as like a sentimentalist right mm. um or or worse um if there's anything worse than a sentimentalist. Uh, but she is also a very ironic writer at times, mm-hmm. which maybe go- goes to what you were saying most here about like, sometimes it is hard to, because she tells you what not to believe, it is hard to know what to believe, maybe. Um, but like a man does his duty, right? And what he, what he does his duty by disobeying the law, right? Yeah, and if I recall correctly, he's even like a state senator or something. I remember yes, that, that yes. he, has, he has some kind of political office. Right, like he has taken an oath uh, to the state, but he has an, uh, a, a higher oath, uh, to humanity. Um, it does, it, it does also remind me of one of my favorite parts of the book, which is where, um, I think it's the, it's, it, it, it's when someone finds refuge at a Quaker home and one of the children describes, uh, how like, like the mom is the, like the moral center of the, the family. Uh, and the, the story, the story he tells is something like, she found us, um, she found us torturing a cat and she laid into us kids so much that like, we sure learned the lesson, never torture cats. Um, and it's that sort of like, like, that's not like, it's the most narrow interpretation uh, of, uh, of the lesson. And like, that is the difficulty of teaching lessons sometimes that like Mm. you either, uh, apply it too narrowly or too broadly or, uh, just misapply it. Um, yeah, it's like I had a friend who was hospitalized because of cocaine use, and I asked, what did you learn? And the response was, I'm never buying cocaine from that guy. <laughs> I was I was a little bit upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, it's funny, like, I, I, I guess uh, this is very much against the premise of the podcast where we talk about the first page. Uh, but again, I, I kind of think all this is in here, that like, this is a book which is um, uh, as terrible as it is to read about these actual historical events. Uh, she is a very deft writer w- about 
uh, with some with some comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember? Actually, maybe you can y- y'all can 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 correct me on on this, but I seem to recall that there is some case where um, someone is trying to hunt for an escaped slave, and uh, there are two slaves. I think one of them might be named Sambo. Uh, that's uh, that's Sam and Andy. They're they they with Haley chase down Eliza. Right, but they they like play into the stereotypes of being like dumb and lazy to let her escape. Yes, they they very much they very much are like the uh, in Anne Douglas's introduction to the Penguin edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, Douglas remarks about how the uh, that in general the characterization is really good, except on the edges, Stowe sort of leans into stereotyping and parody and and points to those two specific characters as examples of that hmm. i mean uh i kind of thought i mean especially in that in that that episode which we did not read and refresh our memories on hmm. but um uh that part of what uh she is doing there is showing how uh haley like haley with his prejudices can't see how people are playing him because they are they are playing into his prejudices in order to help Eliza escape. Oh no. no, I don't remember them as helping Eliza escape at all. Okay, no, I because that's that's sort of the uh, one of the one of the problems is that the novel demonstrates the difficulty of being a rebel all the time. <laughs> you know, like it's you know. Some people did what they needed to do. You know, there was you. You did what you had to do under these circumstances. I mean, I could be completely wrong, and you could be right. But my my recollection is just that these guys were just wicked uh, people who happened to also oh. be slaves, and um, and that's that. You know, and I wonder if I'm thinking about different characters, a different section, maybe. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I'm just reading that. These, yeah, these are these are yeah, and this is this is like. Uh, Yes, they are the like slave overseers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The uh, there are two other little things in the on the first page I wanted to ask about. Mm-hmm. So one one is is still on that second paragraph because it has this great thing about and that swaggering air of pretension which marks a low man who is trying to elbow his way upward in the world. So this this idea that. Uh, the reason we can hate Haley is because he's a parvenu. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's, it's such, it's inconsistent with the, with the logic of the novel mm-hmm. because the, the narrator has such, has such kind of like, like a class driven disdain here for Haley. But if the narrator is trying to recast that by having like, it's Haley who uses the N word, et cetera. It doesn't work because the narrator is also just inflicting such a like class-driven reading on all of this, mm-hmm. and that's that's really hard to shake off in this first page. Yeah, that was that was something I noticed as well. And you know, again, sometimes it's a little tricky to tell if something like that is like purposefully ironic or if it's just like an ingrained value that's not being questioned. As we're you know in, involved in questioning a much larger 
and more important societal value. Um, but yeah, that was something that jumped out at me. Well, it, it could be also a rhetorical appeal because the narrator is saying these kinds of things so that to a middle-class readership, mm-hmm. these are signs that the narrator can be trusted mm-hmm. because the narrator, you know, the narrator distinguishes between high and low, low-class people and, and understands that there are men of humanity and men of not humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And that this is a, its own tight wire act where the narrator is trying to establish trust with the reader because things are about to get awful mm-hmm. and you're going to need to rely on the narrator to, or you need for the narrator's trick to work for Stowe's trick to work. You have to believe the narrator and be willing to take what the narrator tells you. Yeah. Ben, you look uh, perplexed. Uh, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm just, uh, thinking about this, like, uh, in a long line of sentimental novels where, uh, where your character is also equivalent to your class. Right. Um, mm. and it, it's just kind of funny that, well, I, I, I guess that's always the question with Stowe is like, how much is she using this in order to undercut or, uh, uh, is it just like, is it just the rhetorical trope of the time, right? Yeah. Like, so, I, like we were saying, and I kind of feel like, uh, it, uh, I enjoyed your uh, breaking us down as to which team we were on, <laughs> uh, for for who is the man of humanity, whether humanity is uh, the best of us, the most flawed of us, or uh, like just uh, the, the 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 medium flawed. Um, well, I guess no. Actually, that's the question of like. Like you were saying, like we are we are given on this page the impression that Haley is a monster, mm. and like this first page does not really pull any punches with him. Like any way that he can, like if the book, like actually maybe that I was going to say, like like if, if this was done as like a scratch and sniff book, uh, mm. Haley would be some putrid uh, scent, mm. and I only but wonder- not the most putrid. <laughs> importantly, he's uh, not the villain. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's the thing. It's like, it's almost like, is she saying something that I feel like sometimes people are still struggling to understand that like, it is not about, it is not about your personal opinions or thoughts, but about like the system into which you are born and are contributing, uh, in your way without even knowing. It's about, it's about what you do. Yeah. Um, so 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 she she presents us with Haley as this like uh unmitigated boil uh on on uh this system. Like slavery is bad but like Tom is a slave and he's I think married at this point, right? Uh and like Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's ha- and, and like the 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 crime of slavery and like th- this is part of what what Stowe is saying is that like it, it's not just about like the fact that we hold people as property, but that the fact that they are property makes them uh, transferable, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you can break up all natural bonds uh, by selling. Uh, so Haley is uh, like uh, Haley is worse than uh, Shelby because Haley is part of the uh, transportation of people, uh, even though what we actually should get from this page 
I mean, sorry, I keep I keep saying this the wrong way. <clears throat> this first page wants us to, at first, uh, be against Haley, and because there's only two people, we find ourselves kind of drifting towards Shelby's side. But the trick of the book is that Shelby is as guilty of uh, commodifying and dehumanizing people uh, as Haley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're we're presented with with Haley as a person we can instantly dislike to be in contrast with someone who is mannered mm -hmm. and who we can, especially as, you know, thoughtful, educated people, uh, view as a positive individual. And then by the end of the page and certainly by the end of the chapter, it's like, Oh no, that distinction is purely aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, if you'll, if you'll let me, uh, there's a section from Lauren's, uh, from Lauren Berlant's, chapter poor eliza about this where they write this is about bridges of madison county it is as though waller that is to say the uh the author of bridges of madison county it is as though waller had uncle tom's cabin on his lap and answered stowe's not marxist enough cry but what can any individual do not by deploying the saga form that allows personal stories to be told as soap operas or epics the forms of communal storytelling Rather, he answers the question, Waller, by telling it the way she imagines her own novel's destination. What can the individual do? Of that, Stowe writes, every individual can judge. If there's one thing that every individual can do, they can see to it that they feel right. Mm. An atmosphere of sympathetic influence encircles every human being and the man or woman who feels strongly, healthily, and justly on the great interests of humanity is a constant benefactor to the human race. And this... This just rocks me because of the sort of it's it what what ends up happening to me is thinking about Uncle Tom's cabin in the context of something like uh anthropogenetic climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, where where this is a question that we we ask of ourselves, like, well, what can you know, like why should I recycle? You know, the the mm -hmm. The earth is not getting destroyed because I'm not recycling. It's or, or because we're not all not recycling. It's getting destroyed by things that are, you know, there are much graver threats that are, would be much easier to uh to solve. And, you know, like you you all had your episode with on Kim Stanley Robinson already. So I, I don't have to rehearse the plot of Ministry for the Future. Um but the interesting way that Stowe sees this in the sentiment in, in tying with the sentimental tradition is they can see to it that they feel right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's such a weird response that echoes at once to like George W. Bush's if it feels good, do it. Mm. And, you know, just all these other sorts of things. And and you know, this is, you know, it, central to the project that came out of how we understand U.S. nationalism in the context of the course in which we read Uncle Tom's Cabin. So it's so hard for me to, 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 pull, to pull myself out of this kind of thing. And that has resonances uh, today also in the way that, and I think that this gets, this gets reproduced in, in this first page, because uh, one of the things that when, Vin, like you said, like it's, it's an aesthetic thing. Mm -hmm. Um think about this as like the, you know, your NPR tote bag liberal, mm -hmm. um, which is for whom in some kind of way, Uncle Tom's Cabin is written, right? And then, and this is, this is the critique of, of sentimental literature that, that uh, 
Baldwin talks about in everybody's protest novel, and that, you know, many thinkers have tracked, including Lauren and poor Eliza. And what I'm getting at is, is this kind of, you know, Baldwin's issue with Uncle Tom's Cabin is that in in, in centralizing the fact of feeling and, and especially Tom's suffering, in universalizing that kind of suffering, et cetera, et cetera, we kind of imagine that it, it's, it's this sort of liberal permission to use suffering as a means by which to create equality with people who are uh, lowly, life among the lowly, like the subtitle of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm-hmm. And this goes exactly to what you, you were saying, Ben, about taking those two courses at the same time. Tom has to suffer the trauma because it's only in seeing him suffer and it's only in seeing Eliza like, uh, you know, dash across the Ohio. It's only in seeing these these moments that we are able to understand this as human beings that we can incorporate into the American body politic, that we can extend our citizenship to them because they have, they have, they suffer trauma. And that's so messed up. Mm-hmm. Like the fact, the fact that you can be traumatized should not be the basis on which your humanity or, or like your your uh, your importance or your value to the world is is established. And I just I just want to sort of finish this like you know this little role I'm on by talking about how we, um, you know the 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 sort of discourse around facts and logic where this isn't this isn't facts and logic from the like libertarian perspective, but this is fast facts and logic from the in this house we believe in science perspective, where it's just like the, you know, people who believe in science and facts and logic look around and they're like, how can these people let feelings drive their actions, you know, and and, you know, believe these fake news articles, et cetera, et cetera, just because it feels right. And it's like, dog, read Uncle Tom's cabin. <laughs> you know, read read how how Stowe was dealing with this stuff. 150, 170 years ago, and and couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, she managed to start a war, but uh, but even so, like her, and that that's I think what's great is that she her solution to doing this kind of a political thing is still problematized because we can't find a hero in Shelby. Mm. But even though aesthetically he's presented to us here as a hero, and that's just. That's just so great. That's just so great. That's so much better than anybody who scoffs at this and is like, you know, flat characters, blah, 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 cry, 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 boring stuff for women. Because that's the whole, mm. I mean, that's, again, this is, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just parroting Lauren now, more or less, but but you, you get my drift. <laughs> On that note, uh, I think we are sort of pushing up towards time. <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm, I uh, thank you for indulging. Oh. I, I, I'm so, I'm so I'm, again, I'm so glad about this, and I'm so I, it's this this novel has really meant a lot to me. So glad we could have you on for it. yeah. Even even though I haven't read the whole thing, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the, 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 these things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have yeah. any closing thoughts? <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I absolutely believe this was instrumental in the Civil War. Um, I mean. Even if it, it's funny, uh, oh, how should I say this? Um, I think one of my grad school teachers uh, took. I, well, uh, I, I was not. I was not at the this uh, the scene, but the the scene as it was reported to me is that Lauren said something about um, uh, 
homosexual desire springing from some trauma, and a homosexual teacher took offense of that. Uh, and of course, like what was missing from that conversation is the fact that, like, for Lauren, uh, most things spring from trauma, right? Mm. It is not particular to uh, y- your uh, desire. Um, uh, now nah, we can cut that. But uh, <laughs> what do I want to say? Uh, no, but but I mean, th- but that is like what what is central to Lauren's work is the idea of what feeling does with regard to how we make communities, how we build communities of feeling. You know, they had an essay, The Subject of True Feeling, which is uh, more or less around the same time as they were writing Poor Eliza. Mm-hmm. Like, this is all, this is all like central to, to the legacy of their thought. And so I think that that's like perfectly appropriate. Yeah. My closing thought was, was far more banal, which was just to say that Uncle Tom's Cabin lives with us even in 2021 because, uh, when Siobhan Roy sees Kendall for the first time in succession in the in season three, she says she says something like, Oh, it's the little boy who started the war. Mm. <laughs> um I just feel like I don't know, like yes. Uh it is interesting to me that well, I guess that's the thing. For 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 me, the novel is, is both like a towering success, again, started a war, uh, and kind of like a noble failure the civil war by the way i don't think we ever (laughs) made that clear (laughs) uh yeah can't believe this novel assassinated the archduke ferdinand (laughs) um uh but uh it wasn't it wasn't thick enough to to prevent the bullet i mean yes of all novels like if only only he had the 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 two volume german version in his pocket Mm. um yeah um but there's something about uh, I don't know the 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 vision of humanity here is also to me so uh, specific mm-hmm. uh, because it is like very Christian, like so Christian, like so. Uh, uh, do you remember the Marrow of Tradition? That I did actually read, <laughs> um, but remember far far less. Uh, there is a part. In, in, in Marrow of Tradition. And Marrow of Tradition is uh, uh, Charles W. Chestnut's novel uh, about the actual historical uh, white riot uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and it's also funny, just to compare to this, we'll have to do that novel next, Moe's here. You'll have to come on for that. Um, <laughs> We're like, just going to go through the... Through, I mean, I have the syllabus from that class. So honestly, we have like, Ramona also, and Blythedale Romance, I guess. And, uh, did we do Blythedale for that? Oh, interesting. Um uh, oh yeah, no, we totally did Blythdale. Yes, sorry. Yeah, I'm, that was an audible. Yes, right. For my for my uh, for my orals, I did uh, Seven Gables. Uh, that's what I. That's when I did Seven Gables. Um, sorry, uh, Chesnut's novel, uh, which pretty much killed his his novel writing career <laughs> because white people did not want to read <laughs> about uh, a, a riot. Um, but there's a part where the main character, who is an educated black doctor, mm-hmm. is trying to get across town to his family or something. And he is stopped by a white militia, which is going around and like, uh, um, well, it it is going around and like making sure that no, none of the black citizens of the town are up to no good, which is of course, whatever they decided is. But one of the characters in this militia is like the white, excuse me, is the Jewish pharmacist. Uh, and the doctor character makes a comment about like, oh, like I would have thought that like a son of Moses, uh, would have. Um, some fellow feeling about oppression, right? Mm. And it is uh, a very cutting moment to me. Um, 
And it is funny that there's no, there's nothing like that in this book, right? There's, there, there, there's, there's no one who's not Christian. You're either like a good Christian or a bad Christian. Yeah. And that to me is sort of a, uh, failure of depiction of the nation state and like that, uh, that community. Yeah. But perhaps that, that imagined community, right? But it's perhaps what allowed it to be as effective as it was right. in yeah, reaching I mean, the target audience it needed to reach. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I, I, I feel like the, yes, I agree that, <laughs> that the, it's, it's disinterest in anything outside of a very strong Protestant tradition is a, a feature, mm-hmm. but it does, it does limit its ability to stand in for, uh, to to give a good accounting of the nation state and and part of that might also be because uh when we have these kinds of nation state when the historical novel does the work of explaining the nation it's often done through things like uh love plots <laughs> which uncle tom's cabin doesn't have <laughs> unless you know you you want to think about like little eva and uncle tom right, or something right. which is inappropriate right uh but makes up a lot of the imagery the visual imagery of the of the novel in its in its life as posters and tchotchkes and yeah. games and so on well oh yes i mean which is a whole thing but uh sorry man this is gonna be uh real fun to to edit for you <laughs> uh but like there, there there's something so interesting about that point you raised most here about like the love plot where like the love plot here is or like the family plot the the formation of the family is uh escaping to canada right like that is the that well it's not the form it's the re-establishment mm-hmm. so it's not it's not the formation in the sense of reproduction or something along the, or like a marriage plot because they're already married right right they just have to meet up in canada i i take your point i i, I mean in the formation of like the stable household, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, yeah. and like Dom- the, domesticity, sure. Yeah, yeah, the the reproduction of culture. Yeah, the thing that really. occupies the space that is the formation of a family in the narrative structure. Yeah, yeah. It is and that's yeah. something denied in the in the system of of slavery. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's one of the problem. The 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 whole problem of this opening page is the fact that in selling Tom and in selling Harry two families will be destroyed. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no possibility for domesticity mm-hmm. when you are chattel slavery. Right. Yeah. I mean, and again, and that's like, it's like coming at this in modern times where like we might quibble with like, you know, families uh, being one particular representation of family. But also I just feel like, I don't know, it's just so good the way that like, that gets reconfigured, right? Like there is no marriage plot. There's an escape so we can be together and be married plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Read this book, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oof. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> Mo's here. <laughs> uh, where, where, where can, where can the people find you? I tweet from my account, the name is Moseus. That's M U Z I E J U S. I also have my own extremely infrequent podcast called Undercurrent. You should be able to find that wherever. I co-host that with my friend and and colleague at the Undercurrent Gallery in Brooklyn, Adriana Furlong. And if the username is too tricky to spell, which it may be, unless you speak Lithuanian, 
you can just Google my first name, M-O-A-C-I-R, and I will be among the first hits. I am a king of SEO. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Dark and Stormy Nights. I've been your host, Ben Blattberg, and you can find me on Twitter at InCatastrophe. And I've been your other host, Finn LeBate. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Reciprocity, and you can find the games that I write at mrreciprocity.itch.io. For show updates, corrections, and occasional bouts of actual research, subscribe to our monthly newsletter at monthly.darknightsreads.com. For everything else, follow Dark Knights Reads on Twitter or visit darknightsreads.com, and we'll meet you back here next time, weather permitting.